Will you please join me as we pray? Our great God and Father, in this difficult season, would you grant us grace to trust you even when we don't understand? Would you help us to see in your word things that will anchor our soul when difficult times come? And Father, I pray that you would just warm our hearts toward you, cool our hearts toward things of the world. And Father, may we look forward to heaven more because we've looked into your word this morning. So Father, we thank you and we need your help and we're grateful that we can trust you for it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, in this season of global suffering, we have been seeking to understand our relationship with God better by studying the book of Job. Two weeks ago, we caught a glimpse into the scene in heaven between Satan and God when Satan accused God of uh, paying Job to love him. And that scene sort of opened up for us the fact that uh, suffering displays the worth of God to a watching world on heaven and earth. Last week, through the foibles of Job's friends, we learned that God doesn't work according to a simple formula. You can't predict how God will work and God answers to no one. You know, that doesn't leave us with very many options for understanding God. It doesn't leave us with very many options for understanding suffering. It would be easy to resign yourself to say suffering must be arbitrary and you'll never understand it. It'd be tempting to say, you know what, I can't know God and I can't understand my suffering, so I'm just going to sit here in silence and trust that God knows what he's doing. Now, that's not entirely bad. God does want you to trust him. But I think it may come to a point where you admit, I don't understand, and I will sit here and suffer in silence. It may come to that, but Job was not content to do that. He spoke up over and over and over about his innocence, about his desire for God to answer him, and give an explanation. He exhausted his friends and their mechanical view of how life worked. And so another man, a young man, comes on the scene whom God uses to help us understand him better and recognize the depth of suffering even more intently. I think that God invites us to have more than a simple, blind resignation that somehow passes for faith. He wants us to realize that he is working in our lives, in the world, through suffering. And in chapters 32 through 37, a young, angry man named Elihu 
helps us to see that. Elihu is the final speaker to enter the discussion. He's a young man who apparently has waited until Job's friends uh, had exhausted their arguments before he entered the conversation. He's waited because he's young. He's angry because he's seen the foolishness of the friends and the futility of Job's defense. He's so angry, in fact, that he says he cannot contain himself any longer. He's like a balloon that's about ready to pop. Well, Elihu is not easily understood or appreciated. In an ancient commentary, Gregory the Great thought Elihu was a haughty presider under the pretense of a faithful teacher. Martin Luther considered him an empty gas bag. What role does Elihu play in the development of the book of Job? That's really our question. At times he sounds like the three friends, but he moves the story along in a little bit different way. You see, all throughout, Job has longed for a mediator. He's longed for uh, an arbiter, someone who will answer for heaven's unfairness, somebody who will represent God to him and him to God. And Elihu, I believe, takes that role. You might think of it this way. Job is on trial. The three friends moved from being friends in support of the plaintiff into the jury box. They had attempted to condemn Job, and Job had acted as his own attorney, defending himself, all the while hoping for a fair hearing. Now, Elihu comes in, in the end, to provide some kind of mediation and hope for a reasonable settlement. In so doing, he addresses Job's objections and prepares the way for God to enter the conversation. We're introduced to him in Job chapter 32. In verse 2, he uh, is introduced with his family pedigree. He is the only person in the entire book who has relatives that are listed. It says, Then Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the family of Ram. Now, I just want to point this out because these names are significant and they, even the names themselves, indicate the challenge that we will have in making sense of suffering. Elihu means... He is my God. What a great name. The meaning of his father's name is God has blessed. So he is my God and God has blessed. But then it tells us he's a buzzite. A buzz, buzzite, buzz means contempt or scorn. So he is blessed in the context of contempt and scorn. And then finally, the family name of Ram means height or highly exalted. And so even in this pedigree of Elihu, we have this unhappy mixture 
of worship and contempt, of blessing and cursing, of God making sense and God not making sense. Even his name clues us in to the difficulty of making sense of God and suffering. Is it any wonder then that Elihu has been regularly misunderstood and no one is for sure uh, certain what to do with him? Well, chapter 32 provides an extended introduction of Elihu. He introduces himself. He states his intention. He tells us how angry he is four times in the first five verses. He speaks really for his own benefit because he can't hold it back anymore. He's not perfect. His ideas aren't perfect. But he lays out his case. And he does it with formality that's indicated by uh, three stanzas, even in this introduction, that are all uh, indicated with the same phrase. I declare my opinion. I want to declare my opinion. Verse 6 and 10 and 17. Then he begins chapter 33 by contending that he's on the same footing as Job that he can understand God just as well as Job can. And then it's after that in chapter 33 that the action picks up. Elihu answers three of Job's main objections to his treatment by God. And before we look at them, I want you to realize that these represent our objections too. I mean, who, who among us really Uh, suffers without asking why? Who of us can experience pain and not wonder, what did I do to deserve this? God, this doesn't seem right. Who can pray when things are hard and not think that the heavens are brass and God doesn't answer? Well, those really are Job's uh, objections. So in chapter 33, verses 8 and 9, the first objection that Job has already said early in the book that Elihu highlights is that Job is innocent. Verse 8 and 9 says, Surely you have spoken in my ears. I've heard the sound of your voice. You say, I am pure. Without transgression, I am clean. There is no iniquity in me. So Elihu says, this is objection number one. Objection number two is in verse 10. Behold, he finds occasion against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks and he watches my paths. There he suggests that Job thinks God's persecution of him is unjust. And Elihu will suggest that God is not unjust, but that he inflicts pain as a friendly surgeon, not an angry executioner. And then verses 12 and 13, we see Job's third objection exposed that God has ignored him. Verse 12, behold, in this you are not right. I will answer you for God is greater than men. Why do you contend against him saying he will answer none of man's words? Like God is silent, and Joe wonders why. And so, in highlighting these three objections, Elihu is essentially saying to Job, You are not suffering because of your sin, you are sinning because of your suffering. 
The friends said that suffering was a result of sin. Elihu is suggesting that sinning is a result of the suffering. And so he raised those three objections, and now he's going to answer them in turn, actually in the opposite order. So in chapter 33, verses 14 through 33, he says, God has not ignored you. Look at verse 19. God has cast me into the mire. I have become like dust and ashes. I cry to you for help, and you do not answer me. I stand, and you only look at me. You have turned cruel to me. And with the might of your hand, you persecute me. These, he's, he's, he's quoting Job's words back to him. And then he's going to answer Job. And his answer is this. Job, God has not ignored you. How do you know he hasn't ignored you? God still speaks. Chapter 33, 14 through 18, he speaks through dreams. Then... Most of the point in chapter 33, verses 19 through 22, he says, God speaks through pain. Look at verse 19. Man is also rebuked with pain on his bed and with continual strife in his bones, so that his life loathes bread and his appetite the choicest food. His flesh is so wasted away that it cannot be seen, and his bones that were not seen Stick out. His soul draws near to the pit in his life to those who bring death. Man is also rebuked with pain, he says. For a young man, I think there's pretty significant wisdom in that. One commentator quotes C.S. Lewis along these same lines and says, God whispers to us in our pleasures speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. Pain is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. David says this in Psalm 119, verse 71. He says, it was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. One of the ways you know that God has not ignored you is that he's still speaking in your pain. And then he goes on to say that in verses 23 and 24, God still speaks through divine messengers, whether there's an angel, a mediator, one of a thousand, to declare to a man what is right. And then he is merciful to him and says, deliver him from going to the pit. I have found a ransom. So God speaks. He's not only not ignored you, he speaks and he's not only spoken, but he speaks in order to save you. He spells that out again in verses 25 through 28. Um, It's most clear in verse 28. He has redeemed my soul from going down into the pit and my life shall look upon the light. So God has not ignored you. And I would say the same thing to you. If you feel like in your pain, when you're trying to to get the attention of heaven, 
God has not ignored you either. He is speaking. He's speaking through, your, through His Word. He's speaking through other people. He's speaking through your pain. So God has not ignored you. He takes up then the next objection in chapter 34. God is not unjust. And he answers in a variety of ways. In verse 12, it says, Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. It is not in God's character to be unjust. Or to put it the other way, God is righteous, and he will do what is right, even when it doesn't look right to you. He asks the question in verse 17, how could God govern if he abandoned justice? I mean, think about the, think about the news around our world where everyone's second-guessing people in authority and uh, are they doing the right thing? Are they just? Here in verse 17, he says, shall one who hates justice govern? Really? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, nobles a wicked one, who shows no partiality of princes or regards the rich no more than the poor? For they are all the work of his hands. He says, you're not in a place to condemn God who is righteous and mighty because how could he govern if he just abandoned justice? And he concludes this response in verse 37 uh, there of chapter 34 when he says Job you have added rebellion to your sin he claps his hands among us multiplies his words against God so you're not suffering because of your sin you're sinning because of your suffering and he confronts Job and then Job's third and probably the one that Job holds most dearly is his third objection is that he's innocent. And Elihu takes that up in chapter 35. He says, Job, you're overstating your innocence. See, in some respect, I think we, it's a little easier for us, at least a little easier for me. I don't make any pretense that I'm innocent. I do, I, I, well, I should say, I don't feel like Job. I don't feel like, hey, I've never done anything that would be worthy of God's just judgment. But Job did feel that way, and he maintained his innocence. And so now Elihu answers him. In verse 6, he says, If you sin, what do you accomplish against God? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what did you do to him? And if you're righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Which is an interesting argument. What he's trying to say there is, Job, if, you're, if you sin, you haven't injured God. If you're great, you, you've not made God better. God remains unchanged, unmoved by your behavior. So whether you're innocent or not is sort of outside the realm of this suffering. It's outside the question at hand.
And Job's concerned that in his innocence, God is silent. And Elihu suggests to him that maybe he's silent, Job, because he's not bringing judgment. Verse 14, he says, How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you're waiting for him. And now because of his anger, because his anger does not punish and he does not make note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk and multiplies words without knowledge. Job, you're maintaining your innocence and you're thinking that God doesn't answer. And maybe all God is doing is not bringing judgment. And so he addresses in that section Job's third objection that he's innocent. Then he moves in as, into another speech. So there's a series of speeches here. And the next speech, it, he essentially affirms that God is righteous and God is doing something right through this suffering. God is righteous and is doing something right when there is suffering. He gets people's attention through suffering. You know this is true. You see it. I mean, how can, you, how can you argue with that right now? When all of the news that comes across your newsfeed or across your TV, is, it's, it's got our attention, doesn't it? Because it's hard. He suggests that, Job, if you listen, the days will be hard, but the years will be pleasant. Look what he says in verses 10 through 12. He opens their ears to instruction and commands that they return from iniquity. If they listen and serve him, they complete their days in prosperity and their years in pleasantness. If they do not listen, they'll perish by the sword and die without knowledge. And so he's, well, on the one hand, it sounds like he's uh, parroting the three friends from earlier He's also suggesting that God is using this suffering to get Job's attention. Just like God arrests our, intent, our attention through suffering. Then he goes on to suggest something even more spectacular, really. In verse 15, he says that God delivers the afflicted by their affliction. And he opens their ear by adversity. I don't know if it's ever occurred to you that the very affliction that you feel so acutely might be the very means for your deliverance. I think about that with things that have happened to me and things that... Um, God has done, I would say, to me. But in my more sober moments, I would say for me. Uh, when I was in high school, I, um, I injured my knee. and injured it again in college. I've had eight surgeries on my left knee. And I've long thought, what would my life be like if that hadn't happened? And I suspect that if that affliction hadn't come my way, my life would be very different. I'd be surprised if I'd be in the ministry now. 
I would imagine that I would be, you know, some kind of a uh, athletic director in the High Line of Montana, freezing in the winter and uh, fighting mosquitoes in the summer. And God delivered me from a life that really would not have been the life that I enjoy now through the affliction. Then in verse 16, he suggests God leads you away from danger by your pain. He says that God allured you out of distress into a broad place where there was no cramping. And what was set on your table was full of fatness. That God changes your life through your suffering. One of, my, one of my favorite books on this topic is called A Grace Disguised by Gerald Sitzer. And he's a professor up in Spokane. And in one moment, in a tragic automobile accident, he lost three generations of women in his life. His mom and his wife and his daughter were traveling together and were killed in the same accident. And he wrote about that experience and what, he, what happened in his heart uh, in his book, A Grace Disguised. And he said about the effect of his own suffering. He said, during that first year, I cared little about advancement or prestige. I did my job, though not to impress other people or to get ahead. I was rarely elated by successes or depressed by failures, as if I was detached from it all. When I came up for tenure, I never wondered or worried about it. I spent time with friends because I valued being with them. And I decided what I wanted to believe because I thought it was true and right, not because it was popular or expected. I reflected on the kind of person I wanted to be, not to please others, but to be true to God and myself. I enjoyed a rare kind of simplicity, freedom, and equilibrium that I may never know again. I found satisfaction in the doing of life, not in the getting done of it. Though I have not entirely lost the intensity and the purity of that first year, I find my life more cluttered now with extraneous concerns and trivial worries. I do not miss the screaming pain, but I do miss the clarity and the focus I had then. I think it's easy to imagine a life without pain. I think we all would love a life without pain. In fact, you might even envy somebody. If you heard that there was somebody who didn't feel pain, you might count them as blessed. But the reality is that pain protects you. People who cannot feel pain injure themselves all the time because they can't tell something's wrong. They'll touch a hot stove and not know it. They'll um, trip or uh, break a bone and not know it. In fact, they die earlier than people even with other disabilities because when something's wrong, they don't know. 
And so Elihu suggests to Job that pain protects you. Pain draws you away from uh, your uh, trouble. And then he suggests in verse 21 of chapter 36 that suffering keeps you from evil. Take care. Don't turn to iniquity. For this you have chosen rather than affliction. He warns him, don't, don't turn back to iniquity. Your suffering is to draw you out from evil, not to send you toward it. And so then he begins his final speech here. And essentially his final speech asks the question, who can understand God? God is beyond your comprehension. Look at what it says in uh, chapter 36, verse 25 and 26. All mankind has looked on it. Man beholds it from afar. Behold, God is great and we know him not. The number of his years are, are, are unsearchable. And then he begins to talk about a storm. And it's as though he's there, the three friends are over here, and Job's over here, and he's, it's his turn to lecture, and he's, he's winding it up, and he looks, lifts his eyes off to the horizon, and there are the storm clouds. And he imagines that God has something to do with the storm. We know, because we've looked ahead, that God is ultimately going to get the final word, that God is going to speak through the storm. And Elihu kind of gives us a hint that that's the case. God answers in chapter 38, out of the storm. And as this storm gathers, it causes Elihu to reflect on the power and the magnificence of the storm. He says, at this my heart also trembles and leaps out of its place. Keep listening to the thunder of his voice and the rumbling that comes out of his mouth. Under the whole heaven he lets it go and is lightning to the corners of the earth. After it his voice roars. The th he thunders with his majestic voice, and he does not restrain the lightning when his voice is heard. He thunders wondrously with his voice. He does great things we cannot comprehend. For to the snow, he says, fall on the earth. Likewise to the downpour, his mighty downpour. He seals up the hand of every man, that all men whom he made may know it. Then the beasts go into their lairs and remain in their dens, from its chamber comes the whirlwind, and the cold from its scattering winds. And by the breath of God, ice is given, and the broad waters are frozen fast. And he loads the thick clouds with moisture. The clouds scatter his lightning. And it's, though he, it's as though he's on the plains in the summertime, and he sees this uh, thunder cloud just growing and growing in the distance and then moving across the plain toward him. 
and he's impressed by it, and he says, this is what God is like. There is a storm brewing, and God is about to unleash a storm toward Job. But we'll save the storm for next week. The beautiful thing is after he describes this this storm that just changes everything, changes the way the animals behave, changes the landscape, changes the water, changes the, the earth, frightens everyone. Then he suggests to Job, Job, there's going to come a day when the storm is over. That's the way that storms are. Storms get over, Job. Look at chapter 37, beginning verse 21. And now no one looks on the light when it is bright in the skies. The the clouds are gone and the, the, the light is too bright to look at. When the wind has passed and has cleared the clouds, out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He's great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him, and he does not regard those who are wise in their own conceit. There's a first hint that we have in the whole book, really. Job, the storm won't last forever. And when it clears, you'll see things differently. When it clears, God will be clothed with awesome majesty. You'll see him great in power, justice, and abundant righteousness. And he will not regard those wise in their own conceit. And so Elihu rests his case there. He stops having represented God to Job, pointed out Job's objections, tried to answer them, and then warns Job, this will not last forever, and then you will have a more clear picture of who God is. And I'm struck again that Elihu wanted to be Job's arbiter. He wanted to be the mediator, the one who went between God and Job. And he was to a degree. You see, he brought things up, he talked about things, but he didn't solve anything, he didn't bring any resolution. He didn't give Job any comfort. In fact, he probably made him feel worse. This is the first person Job doesn't answer. There is no reply on Job's part. You see, he pressed Job pretty hard. And he attempted to mediate between God and Job. And he didn't really solve anything. 
I just want to suggest to you that you, on the other hand, you do have someone who represents you to God. And it's somebody who has brought resolution. It is somebody who has overcome your opponent. He has satisfied every claim against you. He has not assumed your innocence. Instead, he has won for you your innocence. He has made you right in God's standing. See, I think in our suffering, we have the same questions and concerns Job has. Is God against me? Is God ignoring me? Is God angry with me? Those are the same questions Job wrestled with. But for the Christian, those questions are completely answered by Jesus. Listen to this from Romans chapter 8. It says, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is it that will condemn Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, was raised, who is at God's right hand, who is interceding for us? Now, there's no way that God or Jesus will bring a charge against you. Those charges have already been paid. You might be suffering now, and you might even be sinning because of your suffering, but that sin has been taken by Jesus. It has been nailed to the cross so that you might be forgiven of it. And I want to just let you know that if you trust Jesus, if you believe that God is doing that for you when he put Jesus on the cross, then you can be certain that God has nothing against you. Because it's all been placed on Jesus on the cross. You can be certain that your suffering is not because God's judgment is against you. It's not now. And it's not ever. See, that's the beauty of what it means to be a Christian. Is that whether times are good or bad, whether you deserve uh, you know, evil or justice or anything or not, that all of that has been taken by Jesus on the cross and God accepts you and he loves you and your suffering is not because of his anger or judgment. It's not going to surprise me if some of you have never really embraced that before. There's been some religious talk that you've heard maybe, but you've never for yourself embraced 
the fact that I need Jesus to have done something for me. And I want to invite you to do that this morning. If you've not, if you've never trusted Jesus before, why don't you begin trusting him now? So that you can be confident that God is not against you. That God is not ignoring you. That he's no longer angry with you. It's your complete trust in the work of Jesus that saves you. 